All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we are finishing up our Advent series. This is kind of the post-Advent Advent. Uh, Jesus has come. What does that now mean for our lives? Um, so we're going to do that today. And then next week, we are going to start the Gospel of Mark. And so we are going to be in Mark for most of 2024, um, interacting with Jesus through His words, through His um, actions, through His miracles directly. Um, but today is December 31st. It's the last day of the year. Uh, this tends to be a time uh, where people look back over the year that has been and look forward to the year that is to come. Now, the way that we tend to look back is through making lists for whatever reason, right? So right now, filling uh, the internet, filling your feeds are top 10 lists of this, top 20 lists of that. If you listen to the radio, they'll do the top, what, 100 songs of the last year. Uh, Spotify rap tells you what you have listened to and for how long, um, which is especially interesting if you have children, um, and you can know how much of your life was wasted on terrible children's songs over the last year. Um, but all that to say, we remember the year through what has been done. Now, you can move stuff up and down the list. You can decide this was more important or that was, but you can't really change what has happened. 2023 is just about over, and there's not, nothing that you can do um, about it. You can just look back and remember, which is why we then look ahead. As we look ahead, we look at what can be. We imagine that we will all of a sudden have the sort of self-discipline in this next year that allows us to diet and work out regularly and read our Bibles daily and accomplish all of the things that the previous year proved we really don't have the willpower for. That's what the future sort of exists for, to imagine that a new version of ourselves is going to appear simply because the calendar flips over. And so we make these New Year's resolutions to sort of reinvent ourselves, right? I'm going to do it this time. This year's going to be different. Now, I mention this because I think it's weird, but also because I think it tells us a lot about what we think about ourselves, right? Who we are is defined in sort of the resolutions that we make. First, it tells us that we measure ourselves by what we accomplish, by what we do, right? I don't know how many of you write an end-of-year letter, but that's a common thing that people do, right? As you go to write an end-of-year letter, um, it's usually peppered with all of the things that got done. It's essentially sort of a top 10 list for your family, now, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I do the exact same thing, right? You sit down to go like, all right, what was this last year? And you're like, okay, this kid did this. This kid did that. Here's what we have done. This is how we operate. This is how we think. Now, the issue with this is that we can quickly fall into despair when we aren't living up to whatever standard of accomplishment we are using to measure ourselves. In other words, making our lives about what we do forces us to dwell on what we don't. And basing our identity on our own works sets us up for disaster. It's just to continually be a reminder of what you aren't. The second thing that New Year's resolutions tell us about ourselves is that we imagine that we are getting better. Um, so a good portion of self-help and positive thinking movements are based on this idea that you can sort of manifest your reality by believing it into existence. And with this sort of empowerment, influencers convince you that you can sort of keep improving, just keep getting better throughout life until you reach some level of having it all together, whatever that means. But the idea is that we are on this, this track, this, this trajectory of continual betterment. The problem is life doesn't actually work that way, right? At all times, you're getting better at some things, you're getting worse at others. There's kind of this... this 
cycle that is happening. One of the ways that I would use to describe it is if, if you ever have in your house decided, I'm really going to get this one room cleaned up, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull everything out. I am going to, and you spend your entire day getting that room fixed and you're like, you stand back and you're like, oh, maybe you take a picture. Huh? And then you turn around to the rest of your house and you're like, what happened? Right? Everything else has fallen apart. Now, it's not just about what we focus on, though. There's, there's also just a reality to it. We age, right? One of the more challenging aspects of life is that when you have the experience and the wisdom that comes with age, you no longer have the strength and the vitality that we once had, right? We have a phrase, uh, youth is wasted on the young. That's where it comes from. The young people have all this energy and all this time, and yet they tend to waste it on frivolous things because they don't have the experience to know how valuable every day and every moment is. Likewise, as you get older, it becomes more difficult to change and adapt and improve. The older you are, the harder it is for you to break habits, the harder it is for you to start new ones. We also have another saying, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's where it comes from. As you age, you have amassed more information, but that information has less and less of an ability to change you. Your brain elasticity hardens. Now, my point in all of this is is some things are getting better, Some things are staying the same. Some things are declining at every moment of your life. And if you base your life on the idea that you're always going to be getting better, then any frustration or any challenge that comes at you is going to destroy you. You end up giving it power because instead of just being a thing to kind of work on, a thing to to confront, it becomes a thing that is preventing you from the improvement that you are supposed to be experiencing. And so if you, if you bank on continual betterment, you have made a bad bet because life is going to continually prove it wrong. Now, there's one more thing we learn about ourselves, I think, from the way we make resolutions, and that is um, that we know things should be better. Things should be better. We wouldn't try to make ourselves better or resolve to change unless there was some concept of improvement that we aspired to. Now, some of these aspirations come through comparison. Uh, We want to to be better because we see better. We see someone who has done better. I give the example, I want to be a better painter because I have seen beautiful paintings. I know what that looks like, and I know my painting isn't there. But there's also a great many things that we sort of aspire to that we haven't really seen. We We simply know that it should be. Things like peace, belonging, Unconditional love. We've gotten hints of it. We've gotten maybe a taste of it in this life. But we know that there's a more complete version. We know that there is something better. Now, this desire comes from the fact that we were created by a God who is the source of perfection. And He put the knowledge of something better, the desire for something better, within each person He created. C.S. Lewis described it this way. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Now, there's a philosophical discussion here that I'm not going to get into today, right, about whether a person who was formed from nothing, who has only ever experienced this world and evolved from this, would even have the capacity to imagine something beyond what this world offers, Now, today I just want us to think about how this desire that nothing in this world can satisfy 
affects how we live. It is a good thing for us to have a knowledge of perfection. God put that in us. But it also can become a hindrance to living life in this broken world. And so we should be living to sort of bring this world in line with God's standards. If you are trying to create heaven on earth, this standard will loom over you like a shadow. A constant reminder that you are missing something. Now, with all of this, it leads to the question, so what's the point? What is the point of life? What is the point of living? What are we even doing here? Which is what we're going to discuss today. Right? If life is not about accomplishments, if we're not necessarily getting better, if we're never going to reach the goals that we aspire to, what are we doing? And we're going to answer that question by looking at what it means that this life is in him. Right, so two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that this world is made through him. On Christmas Eve, we celebrated the incarnation and that our salvation was by him. Today, we're going to go back to Colossians chapter 1 to discuss how we're meant to live life in him. So with that, let's get into it. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 17, says this. It says, that He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about this term preeminent, um, that it describes sort of the superiority of Jesus. Now, usually when we think of superiority, uh, we think in authoritative terms. Um, So Jesus is the creator, Jesus is the judge, Jesus is above all, which is true. These are all parts of his preeminence. But in the section that we're looking at today, Paul wants to sort of bring it down to earth. He connects Jesus' ultimate power here to our everyday lives. And what he wants from us is he wants us to understand that the reality of Jesus' power is not just something that is above us. It is something that is in and through his creation. And he gives us sort of three ways to think about how Jesus' preeminence should be understood, what it means to live in him. And those three ideas, and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on, are that in him all things hold together, that he is the head of the body, the church, and that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, in each one of these, we get a description of who Jesus is, but each one is also meant to reshape our reality. Because if Jesus is supreme and authoritative, then everything that is true about him becomes part of how we understand the world and ourselves. So let's think about what this means. First thing Paul says is that in him all things hold together. Well, actually he starts by saying he is before all things. Well, which gets us back to the idea of Jesus being the first cause or or primary truth. When we imagine how the world came to be or, or what the purpose of the world we live in is, we must begin with Jesus. Because he is the reason this world was made. Now, if we're going to think about this visually, the, 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 the example that Paul gives us here, um, it would be sort of with Jesus as the center point and, and every other part of creation sort of spoking off from him, right? So he is in the middle. Everything else is coming off from him. He is holding it all together, which I think is an important vision to get in our heads because I think a lot of times when we think of authority, when we think of superiority, we think of it as what I would call an umbrella term. Right? Like God sort of has authority over all things, and he kind of, it kind of just covers everything. 
Now, the reason why I think that difference is important is because of what happens when you pull it away. Right? If you pull the umbrella authority of, of Jesus away, then you'd kind of be like, well, life is pretty much the same as it was before. There's just one level of authority that's missing. But if he's the center of all things, if he is holding all things together, then if you remove Jesus, everything falls apart. He is the point holding it all, and if he were to be, he were to be removed, every other part would lose its anchor and would have to exist on its own, disconnected from everything else. And if every part of life exists on its own, apart from one another, it creates for the people living that life incoherence. And I would say this is pretty much how most people live their lives, um, where they have lots of definitions of a lot of different things, but they don't necessarily go together. As a matter of fact, a lot of times they contradict one another, um, but people are just sort of holding on and defining things entirely disconnected. And what this does for the person living is that you can never really feel like you belong. You can never really feel like you're doing what you should because our idea of who we are has lost its center. It has nothing holding it. Now, I said at the beginning that God put eternity in our hearts and that this provides for us the ability to have hope. The issue is what is the anchor of that hope? Right? Every single person in the world wants the world to be better But what we need is something that's going to bring everything together, that's going to tie it all together to make sense of it. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. He becomes that center point in which every part of our life makes sense in him. Paul summarizes this idea when he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. In that statement, he is saying that Jesus is the source by which we have life, He is the purpose of our life. He is our identity. Paul is addressing here the major questions of Greek philosophy, but he's not saying that Jesus is just the answer to these questions. He's making the point that Jesus is the center. He holds all creation together. And the reason why he answers all the questions is because they're all anchored to him. He is the reason why all things exist. He is the means by which they all happen. Or as John put it at the beginning of his gospel, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What all of this points to is the fact that we cannot make sense of this world without Jesus. You can study and you can know all sorts of truth, but the key that holds it all together is Jesus Christ. And all of these pieces will not come together and be coherent without him. Right? Without him, you can know about a lot of things. But you will not know why they exist. And you will not know how they fit together. Jesus holds all truth together. And in him, we are given everything that we need to know. To be able to process and think and reason in this world. Now, that is the rational or intellectual understanding of this idea of Jesus holding all things together. The issue is we need more than the intellectual, right? The reason why we as human beings can sort of hold on to two contradicting statements at the same time is because we are not always rational. We tend to think on a much more emotional level. We adjust truth to how we feel. Even those of you who believe like, no, I only believe the facts, well, We all bend those things to 
kind of match our experiences. And this can be problematic. I'll give you an example. I've heard a number of people say that you should never tell a person going through a difficult time that God has a plan and purpose for that moment in their life. Now I'll say, I get the sentiment um, that when someone is suffering, probably not the best time to come and preach a sermon to them. At the same time, the idea of suspending what is true for the sake of someone's feelings does not seem to me the best course of action. Because the idea that God's preeminence, His sovereignty, extends to even that moment of struggle that the person is in, that's one of the most comforting realities that there is. It's the reminder that you're not facing this alone, that God is here in our midst, and that He's using even the most difficult things in our lives for His glory. And so I think we need to be careful not to push out the rational truth for the sake of felt needs. That said, we also need to be aware that God addresses our emotions. He is not a truth-bombing God. We don't have to apologize for our feelings and our emotions. God created them. And the concept of Jesus holding all things together is not just there for us to ponder on an intellectual level. This is a truth that is there for us to go to in our time of greatest need. This is the promise that God will meet us there, that He will give us a peace that passes all understanding, which is not a rational idea. It passes all understanding. This is a living hope. This is the promise that Jesus can and will provide a supernatural comfort to us because He is right there with us, holding it and us together. I love how Psalm 139 describes this. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter what we're going through. He is always there. And at Christmas, as Jesus comes in the flesh, as He descends into humanity, it's to assure us that the One who holds all things together is also compassionate and aware of our situation. He's not just in control of a general concept of the world and people. He is the God of all my moments and your moments. And to live To live out each one of these moments in Him is to be sure that He is there with us holding all things together. I would say how you feel about His preeminence doesn't change His authority. It doesn't change that He's there, but it definitely changes your experience of it. And there is a great peace and hope that comes with putting your trust in Him. We read about it in the reading of the law where it says, trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is a refuge for us. To trust in Him is to go to that refuge. And when you do, what God does is He infuses every part of your life with ultimate meaning. 
Because what it means that God is with us, that he is holding all things together, is that our lives are not just about stumbling through, trying to make it through the day, burdened and overwhelmed by the realities of humanity. Trusting in him means that we are children of the king, that we are living out his eternal purposes, even in what seems like the mundane tasks of our lives. This leads quickly to then the second part of what Paul talks about here. He says, rest in him. He says he is the firstborn from the dead. This is pointing to Jesus' resurrection, his rebirth. The concept of firstborn is that others will follow, right? If he is firstborn, there will be second. There will be other people who are reborn in the same way that he has been. Those who belong to Christ will be raised like he was. Paul describes this to us in Romans 6, 5. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right, so it says we are united to Christ in death. His death is our death. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus takes all the sin of his people on himself. We are united to him. And as he goes to the cross, he pays the penalty, and we and our sin die with him. As Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so our unity to Christ makes our death his, or sorry, his death ours. And what it also means then is that we are united with him in resurrection. Because his righteousness, his perfection, his worthiness, his ability to go directly to God becomes ours. And this means we are now able to have a relationship with God because we are in Christ. Paul describes all of this in 2 Corinthians 5. It's actually just a couple of verses after what we read at the beginning of the service. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this process is sometimes called the great transaction, and it's a really good trade. Uh, Basically, we give Jesus our sin, uh, he takes it, he crucifies it, and then he gives us his righteousness. That is a good deal. But I think we need to be a little careful with transactional language um, because this can lead us to thinking that we now possess righteousness, which we do not. Right? It's this weird thing. We have it, but it is not ours. We only have it because we are unified with Jesus. Right? Our righteousness is in Him, which means as long as we're united to Him, we can be assured that it is ours, that we are covered but our sins, that our sins are forgiven and that we are righteous. And as Christians, we can have great confidence in this. We don't have to worry about that. But this is important because people come to me all the time and they want to kind of think through whether or not they are saved, which is a good thing to think through and worry about. Um, but oftentimes people are asking me, am I strong enough? Is my faith good enough? They're worried about falling away. They want assurance that their salvation is theirs. And most often, people want me to point to something that they have done for this assurance, right? To good works. Yep, you've done enough good things. Don't worry. Or to a prayer. You said the right words. You're good. Or to baptism, right? We all want somehow to sort of control and possess salvation. But the Bible actually doesn't let us do this. 
It continues to tell us our works are filthy rags, our faith is weak. This isn't to undermine our confidence, it's to help us put it in the right place. We are called to rest in Him. God isn't interested in us impressing Him or proving ourselves. He wants us to recognize our dependence. We are created beings made with the purpose of worshiping the one who made us. And everything, including our salvation, points back to our need for Him. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2, that God has organized redemption in a way that leads us back to dependence. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this was not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is some of the most wonderful news in the world. Because it reminds us that we can't earn salvation, but it also says you can't lose it. Because it was never in your hands. No, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as long as we are unified to him, he shares his righteousness and his glory with us. And so we don't need to be better. We need to be more dependent. We need to learn to rest in him. It is finished. Jesus has accomplished it. We just need to be continually grateful that he chooses to unite with us and gives us what we could never earn. That is what it means to rest in him. We also read this in the reading of the law. It says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence or rests in him. From him come my salvation. Resting in Him reveals His goodness and mercy and connects us to Him as the only hope that we have. Now this leads us to our final in Him statement for today, abide in Him. Right? While we do not earn salvation, good works are the proper response to focusing on our salvation. And in Colossians 1, Paul told us, He is the head of the body, the church. Right, this is the third picture he gives us, um, this body uh, with Jesus as the head. Now, simply understood, as the head, Jesus provides direction and purpose for action, which has really sort of been the content of the sermon to this point. The world exists for his glory. He gives us commands and laws to help direct us and fulfill his purposes. He also is our motivation. The reason why we should act in this way is because of who he is and what he has done. He is present and ruling over his world then like a brain controlling the body. All of these things flow through him. And as his body, his people, the church, we should live lives that flow from this purpose and direction. In the next chapter of, of Colossians, it says, this is chapter 2, 6, and 7, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So it says rooted, established, built up, all of which imply that over time you will become more connected to this purpose. Right? We're fully unified with Christ at regeneration, but we also become more and more aware of what this means as we grow in the faith. This is called sanctification. The process by which we are being transformed into the righteousness that has already been applied to us. 
And the way that this growth happens is by becoming more and more rooted in Him. Which is something that I wish I would have understood a lot earlier in my faith. Right? I'm not sure why, but I always saw salvation as the work of God. He saves us. And then the rest of our, our, our life is sort of this work that I'm supposed to do. It's, it's, it's human will. So he saves you, and now you better pay him back. You got some work to do. Be better. And that's how I lived out my Christian faith for a long time. And it was really difficult to make any progress. Not because I didn't try. Man, I'd make lists. I'd have plans. This is how I'm going to get over this thing. This is how I'm going to do better. But the harder I tried, it just didn't seem like I could overcome my desire to sin. And the big change for me happened when I shifted my focus from sort of focusing on my sin and fixing myself to focusing on Christ. And rather than being just the one who provides salvation, Jesus became to me the sustainer. The one who provides strength and direction for every moment of my life. And with that, my desires began to shift. Which means that rather than having to produce the strength to overcome the flesh, God did the work of conforming me to his will. And I all of a sudden saw all sorts of things moving in a direction that I had been trying so hard to make happen. God graciously brought me along. And all of this was due to me learning to trust and rest in him. To stop trying to manage and control it all and simply to admit to myself and to Jesus that I am a mess and I need him desperately. Because without him, even when I was trying to do what is right, I failed miserably. And accepting him wasn't enough. In order to truly grow and change, I had to submit to him. And this, I think, is what Jesus is getting to with his disciples when he keeps pushing them. Um, specifically, as he interacts with them in John 15, when he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, part of the word abide means to continue, to endure. right? To not let one moment of success or failure define you. But when Jesus tells them to abide in him here, he's inviting them to connect every part of their life and decision-making to him. To sort of inhale his truth and exhale with a life that reflects his goodness. Not because you and I are capable of doing such work, right? We can do nothing. But because God has chosen to work through us as his body, as his branches, our good work and our sanctification comes from being deeply connected to Him. And for all the goodness and nutrients that are in the branches to come out through the vine, it is in depending on Him that we are able to do His work. And so we cannot possess salvation apart from Christ, and we will not properly live out our role as His body without remaining in Him. 
And this reminds us that Christianity is not something to learn and master. It is a relationship that we grow in. And we grow in relationship by going to Christ in prayer, by interacting with Him in His Word, and by coming and partaking in the sacrament of communion. Now, every time when we gather together, we practice this unifying act as we partake of the body and blood of Christ. And as Jesus presented this, He made it clear that this is a physical act that reflects a spiritual reality. We see this in John chapter 6 when He says, Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. There's a unity, a re Unity every single time we come and we remind ourselves and we unify with Him at the table. So as you come to the table today, come to unify with Jesus in death and in resurrection as you continue to learn dependence and what it means to be in Him. Let's pray.